Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Find Your Model Health podcast, the official podcast looking for those who want to optimize their health and body and understand how everything really works. This week, I'm happy to bring you another very special guest. But before I go on, I must remind you that the information in these episodes is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as medical advice please consult your health practitioner before making any lifestyle changes. So this week, I'm happy to welcome Dr. Abby Lev to the show. Abby is a psychiatrist, psychotherapist, author, mediator, international speaker, and executive coach based out of San Francisco, if I'm correct. Um, And she works out of the Bay Area. And she's on today to really talk to us about all things mindset and behavior and all these hopefully therapeutics that can help us really take care of ourselves more and understand how our body works. Abby has presented her research at numerous conferences and her work has been featured in various news outlets. I'm very excited to have someone with your experience speak to us. She has a lot to offer. She's also the founder of CBD CBT Online, an online platform that connects people with online therapists who specialize in the area of behavioral therapy. And she also offers other resources such as webinars and videos and online courses. Abby, welcome. Thank you for spending some of your time with us. And I had mentioned before we started that I just spoke to someone about CBD. So now I'm getting them both confused. So pardon me if I do that. No worries. I'm I'm really happy to be here. Thank you. So firstly, your background is in psychotherapy. What got you interested in that in the first place? Yeah, I think what got me into psychotherapy is just my own existential angst and and uh, curiosity about human beings, what makes them happy, uh, what makes their lives meaningful. It was a kind of search for meaning, really. And so I went into it for very selfish reasons. <laughs> um, but through it, I learned that helping others helps me and vice versa. When you help yourself, you help others. When you help others, it helps you. And it's not really separate. So do you think you got into it from what I just gathered you said there that you got into it to not only understand what helps humans tick, but almost like how can I influence my own happiness as well? If I know the secrets of life per se, I can kind of use them to my advantage. Yes, that is definitely, I was in the search of a secret to life that now I I, I realize doesn't really exist. There isn't like one secret. Mm. And that I've, so the helping others is something I do. And I express a lot that, I don't do it for the money. I do it because of the fulfillment it gives me. And I don't know if you know who Tom Bilio is. Um, he He's awesome. So he's very much in the mindset, motivation, helping people build business aspect of things. But um, he always refers to like fulfillment is the road to happiness. When you feel fulfilled in what you're doing in life. And a big part of that for me because I'm an entrepreneur and help people like you do, helping people is the fulfillment. And that makes me feel happy. So I always say to my clients, when I help you, it, it helps me. I don't, I'm not here to see the bank balance go up. I'm here to make the difference, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree fully. And I think I, I just, I'm very grateful to my clients because it is very, uh, fulfilling and rewarding work yeah so when you were studying when you first got into your studies what did you kind of come across that was kind of like those aha moments like this could help with happiness and this could help or these potentially are some of the secrets 
Um, it's hard to answer because there's a lot of different things um, that I, I think that at some point I believed, and I think a lot of people are under the impression that we can rewire our brain or kind of um, get rid of negative emotions and get, get rid of negative thoughts. And in the reality of it, it's not really about avoiding uh, difficult experiences. It's about changing our relationship to our internal world so that we have more space for difficult emotions. We could stay with difficult emotions. We build self-compassion and we also change our relationship with our mind in such a way where difficult thoughts and feelings don't stop us from engaging in behaviors that are effective in, in moving towards our values and what we want to be about. So it's not necessarily about, um, it's not really about changing thoughts or changing internal experience. It's more about changing our relationship to these experiences so that then we have more behavioral freedom. We have this choice uh, uh, regarding how we want to act as opposed to, you know, the autopilot mode, our conditioning and the ways we've learned to automatically react. And then we have a choice to respond based on our values. So a big part of that would be know thyself, like understanding who you really are. What you're saying is like sit with yourself in those moments. Or maybe even that there is no self, that there is nothing to really understand as opposed to there are things to move towards and you're actualizing yourself. So with every choice that you make, you could either move towards being a particular kind of person. You could move towards being honest, being collaborative, being fair, being genuine, or you could do behaviors that move you away from that kind of person. Now, often we want to figure ourselves out. We want to figure something out. And really, in reality, the more we try to figure something out, the more stuck we are. Because mm, we overthink things, especially women. Oh, my God, we overthink things. Right. But so it's not so much know thyself as it is create yourself. Absolutely. Yes. We are constantly creating ourselves. And that's that for my clients and followers, that's an easy term to understand when we look at like nutrition and lifestyle habits is every choice is your responsibility and your habits create your results and who you want to be in that area of your life. But when it comes to the brain and psychological aspects that is way easier said than done for sure <laughs> yes and that's where the cognitive behavioral therapy comes in am I correct yes okay so do you want to start with the basics like for people that don't know what is cognitive behavioral therapy sure Cognitive behavioral therapy is a type of therapy that is more active and it's more directive. And the main difference between cognitive behavioral therapy and we'll say maybe psychodynamic therapy is that behavioral therapists, uh, we don't believe that insight alone leads to behavioral change. So understanding something or having insight about something doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to do new behaviors. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure you're aware of that in relation to health, right? If somebody knows that they need to eat healthier or exercise more, just because they realize that doesn't mean that then they're going to start exercising. And so that means that if insight alone is not what leads us to do new behaviors and to change our lifestyle and habits, what, what actually moves us towards new behaviors? And according to cognitive behavioral therapy, we work through the relationship between our thoughts, our feelings, our sensations, and our urges. And we help people uh, be able to change their relationship with these experiences mm -hmm. so that, and also identify new behaviors, new ways they want to uh, respond. And so it means teaching a lot of skills. It also means identifying core beliefs. So I work with schemas, and I have a schema questionnaire on my website. And when you take the questionnaire, you could come up with 11 different core beliefs that show up for you in relationships. And according to cognitive behavioral therapy, um, beliefs drive uh, emotions like 
meaning a sensation, if we have a sensation in and of itself, there's no judgment about it. It's a thought that we have about it that then leads to it feeling good or bad. And so there's always an interconnection, thoughts, feelings, sensations, urges, their behaviors, they're all connected. And we work with each part individually and together to help people have more behavioral freedom. So these schemas, they are self-beliefs or behaviors that you have inside you, but you may not have identified yet. For example, you could have an abandonment schema. It's a core belief that other people will leave you, or you could have a self-sacrifice schema, which is very common in women, which is the belief that other people's needs are more important than your own. Uh, you could have a... Um, a mistrust schema where you believe others will betray you or use you, uh, or an entitlement schema, which is the opposite of self-sacrifice. You believe that your needs are more important than others. So there's 11 different kinds of schemas. And when a schema gets triggered, it brings up an, an, a whole experience, like a visceral experience in your body, thoughts, feelings, memories, sensations, a whole physiological experience. And then it leads us to do these behaviors that we've learned as a way to try to cope with the experience. So for example, if somebody has a belief that they will be abandoned in relationships, schemas are like a pair of glasses. And so you have these glasses on mm -hmm. and you are filtering, you're always looking for abandonment and you may see abandonment where it doesn't exist. And as soon as you see it and you get triggered, you have a whole experience and then you don't want to have the pain. You don't want to have the fear, the loneliness, the inadequacy, and you you do something to try to get rid of it. So let's imagine you start seeking excessive reassurance or attacking your partner. Where have you been? Are you going to abandon me? Are you with somebody else? And the more that you seek this reassurance or attack or blame, the more your partner starts pulling away. So every single schema ends up creating a self-fulfilling prophecy and ends up confirming the very thing that we fear almost manifesting the thing we fear that may not have happened in the beginning but we've manipulated life to end up having that outcome is that correct you know i, I want to distinguish because you're right it is a form of manifesting but it's manifesting through actions not through beliefs. So it's not enough to just think you're going to be abandoned in a relationship to make you then create that dynamic. You have that belief and then you do certain behaviors uh, and that could be seeking excessive reassurance, blaming, accusing, or it could even be finding unavailable partners. But there's a way in which our actions exactly end up creating and confirming the thing that we fear. So when a schema has been triggered, are these actions generally negative? Do you ever see anyone take positive action? Well, I'm not going to let this control me. I'm going to better myself. Or is that where the work has to come in? Well, the reason that it's often not the most positive response is because the same place where we learn or develop these core beliefs is the same place where we also learned the, how to respond to them. Mm -hmm. So for example, if I have an emotion deprivation schema, I have a core belief that my needs are not going to get met in relationships. That means that every schema that we've developed doesn't appear in a vacuum. It is our conditioning and our experiences that led to the development of this core belief. So if I have an emotional deprivation schema, most likely I've had experiences in early childhood with someone who did not meet my needs. Mm -hmm. Now with that person, whether it's my mom or my dad or both my parents, now I've I've now developed a belief, other people are not going to meet my needs. I have to meet my own needs. Now in this environment, I've also learned how to cope with it. So let's imagine that in my early childhood, if I threw a huge tantrum, my mom would attend to me. Or let's imagine that nothing I did would have my parents attend to me. And so I learned excessive autonomy. Now, regardless of which behavior I do in my adult relationship, both of these behaviors will lead to emotional deprivation. Meaning if I throw a tantrum and if A, first let's imagine I have excessive autonomy and I, I don't ask for any help at all and I do it all myself, I hold it all in, I don't get my needs met. 
let's imagine I hold it all in and now I feel like I'm going to burst and I go, I have this need and this need and this need and I throw a tantrum and become evacuative with all my needs. That also stops me from getting my needs met. So I think that's a very good question um, regarding why don't we have more positive coping mechanisms, but we can't develop the positive coping mechanisms in the environment that help us develop the, the maladaptive beliefs, if, if that makes sense. No, it does. So then in that environment, are we taking ourselves out of the environment physically or just the mental aspect? Well, it's really about doing a different behavior in a different environment. So if I have a self-sacrifice schema and I believe other people's needs are more important than my own, maybe I had a parent who treated me as a parent and I had to take care of them. And if I said, no, I have to take care of myself, there'd be guilt. Why don't you care? Why aren't you available? Now I'm avoiding this guilt and I I project that everybody in the world is going to respond like my parent did. So I don't ask for things and I don't get support or I don't say no, um, which continues to confirm that my needs are not important. Now, if I do a new behavior, if I say no, it's really important that I do it with a person that is trustworthy and that will respond differently. So let's imagine I say no to, you know, a friend that I know has very good boundaries and they say, oh, thank you for saying no, I get it. It's just too much. Then we have a different experience with this belief. And the more we do this, the more we reach out with many different people, we call these behavioral experiments, the more behavioral experiments we do, and we have experiences that disconfirm our prediction of how it will be responded to, that is how we could rewire our brain and, and have and rewire our beliefs because we get a, a visceral experience. It's not just an understanding in our head. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a visceral experience of, of having that happen over several different uh, times. Okay. So if I, if I, for example, reached out to you and said, I'm having this experience right now, blah, blah, blah is happening. I'm almost thinking irrational. And how long would it take then if we were working together for us to see almost a turn in the corner there where I'm out? How do I term this? in a better place where I can respond better to those feelings where I can deal with them better and not let them destroy me because I do understand what you're talking about I've seen traits in myself I've seen it in my clients I've worked with people since 2016 so I'm familiar and I would say destroy because it's self-destructive right yeah it is this is very hard to answer because there are certain issues that people come in with, which are very easy to fix. And there are other issues that get more and more complicated. So for example, if somebody comes in with panic attacks or generalized anxiety, the core beliefs related to that and, and doing exposure, having people expose themselves to this physiological experience and learn some self-soothing techniques that's very easy to treat. Mm -hmm. uh, if you have a few schemas, it's very easy to treat. Now, if you think about schemas, let's say there's 11 schemas. Now, if you have if you have a set of schemas, let's imagine you have an abandonment schema, an emotional deprivation schema, um, and a mistrust abuse schema, then you have an insecure attachment style. Now, attachment styles are more difficult to treat than just one core belief. Mm -hmm. And now, now, even further deeper than an attachment style is a personality disorder, borderline personality, narcissistic personality. And those are the things that become more difficult to treat. So depression in and of itself, anxiety in and of itself, easy to treat anxiety with an attachment issue or, or a personality disorder then becomes harder to treat. So it, it really depends on what is underlying the issue itself, what is underneath it all. Okay, so it's the individual situation, per se, kind of like what I do. Some people it's easy, some people a little bit more challenging. So I've heard your previous conversations where you do talk a lot about the 
partnership, narcissistic relationships and whatnot. And I kind of mentioned to you at the start of our conversation that I really try to help my clients understand themselves and help them be successful on every level. So my focus is really on understanding why do you disappoint yourself or why do you constantly let yourself down or consider yourself a failure or to put it simply like not show up for yourself when we look at that is there a specific schema like you mentioned like I've always taken care of other people there's that schema but there is there another one where someone will want to take care of themselves but they never follow through it sounds like you're describing either a defectiveness shame schema, that's a core belief that you're deeply flawed and something is wrong with you, mm. or it could be a failure schema, the belief that you will fail, you will disappoint, you are a disappointment. So one of those schemas, it sounds like you may be describing, yeah. Yeah, it sounds like um, as you describe them, it's, I can hear my client's voice is saying I can't do it or it's too hard and I had asked them last week like do you because I tried to challenge them on every level and one of the questions was do you really think you're worth success like think about do you and surprisingly enough like there was several answers saying no I don't think I'm worth it a lot of women of course in the confidence age now yes I can do everything woman power but there was still a lot of answers no, I don't actually think I'm worth it. And and I was trying to, I'm obviously not a psychotherapist, but I'm trying to understand, well, why do you think you, and obviously that goes very deep. Well, and, and that's what's interesting. A psychodynamic therapist would want to dig very deep as to why they think that way. A cognitive behavioral therapist would say, it doesn't matter why. We could have the belief that we don't deserve something and we could still have success. So we ask ourselves, the thought, what has that thought stopped you from doing this week? Mm -hmm. So if you have the belief, I don't deserve this or, or right, very specific belief, I don't deserve success. Mm -hmm. And we ask them, what kind of things has that thought stopped you from doing this week? Has it stopped you from marketing yourself? Has it stopped you from going back to school? Has it stopped you from reaching out and networking? W what specific behaviors has that thought stopped you from doing? And then we help that person start taking baby steps, very small steps towards doing the behaviors. So according, right, like the reason I love cognitive behavioral therapy is because we don't have to actually change our minds. We don't have to change our mindset. We don't have to change our thoughts or our feelings. What we have to do is do specific interventions. I help clients first identify the behaviors they want to do differently. And then I do specific interventions with all of the barriers that show up as they start taking steps towards that thing. So if a person doesn't believe they deserve success, it doesn't matter. Like for example, right now I could say, I don't believe that I could wave my hand. My hand is too heavy. If I wave one more time, I'm going to die. And for the audio purposes, I'll say I'm waving my hand. And as I'm waving my hand, I could say, my mind is telling me my arm is going to fall off. You know, my arm is too heavy. I, could only, I, I have to stop. It's too much. And yet I could still do it. What our mind tells us and our actions and what we could do with our bodies and our mouths and our feet is radically different. And when we change our relationship with the mind, we could have lots of thoughts about the things we can't do and we still move towards them and we still do them. It's only in doing these things that then we change our mind. It's not the other way around. Mm. So it's almost as if, okay, we have this obstacle, but let's find a way around that. Well, it's like we have an obstacle and each obstacle is different. Is it an obstacle? Is it a feeling that's stopping you from moving towards something? Is it a thought that's stopping you from moving towards something? Is it a lack of skills that's stopping you from moving towards something? If it's a thought, we do certain exercises. We do cognitive restructuring. We do cognitive diffusion. We teach certain skills around non-attachment, detaching from thoughts um, and holding them lightly so that we don't see them as facts. We see all thoughts as hypotheses to be tested. And we help clients test out these hypotheses. 
then those thoughts become lighter, softer, less of a barrier, less of an obstacle. Yeah. If it's a feeling, if it's a feeling that's getting in the way of a person moving towards something, then we work with that feeling. We move towards that feeling. We do exposure where we get closer to that feeling. We notice where it, where it's uh, in our body, uh, how intense is it from zero to 100 we, we um, do certain exercises around physicalizing it, what color is it, what shape is it. We build self-compassion and, and a kind of um, a willingness. It's like a radical embracing of all different experiences, sensations and emotions that it, we almost stop thinking about thoughts as negative or positive or good or bad. We only see them as information about what our next step is. And so these emotions and the sensations, the physiological experiences are no longer obstacles. And we slowly help people uh, take baby steps towards new behaviors. Do you believe, and this just came to mind as you were speaking, do you believe that thoughts and emotions are directly intertwined, that we have a thought and we have the associating emotion and that connection can be very strong and very hard to break. Um, I believe that we have sensations. So we have a physiological experience in our body and we have then through our conditioning labeled that experience as something. We said, this is shame or this is loneliness or this is fear. Mm -hmm. But the reality of it is and a lot of mindfulness work um, and emotion exposure, a lot of these exercises are about being able to separate the experience, the physiological experience from the story that we tell ourselves about that experience. Mm -hmm. uh, one metaphor that I use, for example, is like the roller coaster metaphor. So if we're on a roller coaster, it only takes us about two or three minutes to come back to homeostasis from a state of arousal, right? Where our hands are shaking. <laughs> Our heart is racing. We're we're in an activated state, but we're having a great time on that roller coaster. We're not going, oh my goodness, this is terrible. We're having fun. But if we have that same experience, if we're laying in bed and we feel <gasps> our heart is racing, our hands are shaking, we feel that roller coaster feeling. Now our mind starts telling us a different story about it. It goes, why, why am I feeling this? I don't want to feel this. I shouldn't feel this. It's never going to go away. It's going to last forever. Is this because of my partner? Is this because of my friends? Do I need a new job? Do, did I drink too much caffeine? And that experience makes the physiological, um, the story makes the physiological experience better or worse, good or bad. So we help people really sit with the physiological experience separate from the story. Hmm, that's interesting. Where does empathy come into this then? Does is there is that totally removed as well? Like we're trying to disassociate all emotion and just focus on what's happening. Do you mean empathy for ourselves or for do oneself? Mean... Yeah, because you know in this whole age of self-love and self-care now, not that it's a bad thing, but there's a lot of be kind to yourself, be understanding. And I do agree that has a place, but sometimes I believe like if there's too much of that, you end up stagnant. You end up not taking action as well. I do want to say, I don't think there is ever such a thing as too much empathy. Give yourself as much empathy. There's never too much self-empathy. There's never too much self-compassion. Mm -hmm. Give yourself empathy. Uh, the distinction is, don't give yourself empathy for bad behaviors, right? <laughs> uh, give yourself empathy for your internal experience. So it's not like I get to punch somebody in the face and then go, oh, it's okay that I punched somebody in the face. I'm still a good person. That's not empathy. That's just kind of making excuses, right? Yeah. Right. Now you, so maybe people are mixing the two up because mm -hmm. we empathy does not mean uh, saying, oh, it's okay to do this and this behavior. Empathy means making space for all internal experiences. If if loneliness is there, you go, oh, hey, loneliness. You put your hand on your heart. You send it warmth. You go, it makes sense that I feel lonely. It makes sense I feel insecure. It makes sense I feel afraid. 
You may even want to say self-compassion statements like, may I be safe? May I accept myself as I am? Mm -hmm. um, but really the experience, I, I think that just saying it makes sense that I feel and stating an emotion in and of itself is radically life-changing. Because when we don't want an emotion, we don't get the information from the emotion. When we go, it makes sense that I feel afraid. When we validate the experience, then the next step is, what am I needing from the situation? What is causing me fear? Do I need more consistency? Do I need more stability? Do I need more honesty? It gives us information about what we're needing in the environment and how to feel better, how to behave differently. It gives us information about our values, about what matters. So I see, I think that there's no such thing as too much self-empathy or, or, or self-compassion. Give, I really, I invite everyone to freely give that anytime you have a difficult emotion, a difficult sensation, a difficult thought. And then you notice that even with that empathy, you're still responsible for your actions. You're, you're still responsible for your behaviors. Your behaviors have an impact on people. So thank you for correcting me there. And that is precisely what I was trying to say, but not worded as eloquently as you. But it is, I hate to use the word excuses with my clients sometimes because I don't want to seem like an ass or that I'm picking on them or anything like I do want to try be kind but I also want to help them get the results they want to get so what I'm gathering is yeah be understanding of like why you made this choice or did this action what's going on inside but at the same time don't use it as an excuse for said actions like you still and I love the term you have to be responsible I don't think enough people are responsible so understanding but be responsible for your choices right the thing is is that more and more research is showing that we have very little we have no control actually over our physiological responses over our thoughts or over our feelings mm -hmm. i think that in social media and psychology becoming popular people are under the impression that we have more control over our experiences than we do mm -hmm. uh you know, people saying things like, calm down, don't worry about it, relax. None of those things are going to ever make somebody relax. And that's because we do not have control of the internal experiences that show up. If a tiger came into our rooms right now, and you know what I mean? <laughs> Neither one of us would be able to control our physiological arousal. We would go into fight or flight and fight or flight is a great thing. Thank goodness we would go into fight or flight. That's great but we always have the same control over our behaviors, whether we're in fight or flight, whether we're angry, whether we're sad, whether we're lonely, whether we're insecure or secure, the same choices we have with our behaviors. If so, I, sorry to cut you off, oh, it might be helpful. if I'm ever angry at my kids or my husband or whatever, the last thing you want to do is tell me to calm down because that just rages my fire even more. Why does that happen? So I think it happens because A, I think it's because of spiritual bypassing, toxic positivity, and the messages that we're getting about our emotions. And it really saddens me that we don't learn these things, uh, you know, in school, we're learning about uh, science and math and calculus, but we don't learn about the basics of our experience and how to verbalize our emotions and attend to our emotions. So because um, because there's a lot of confusion and misinformation about our internal experiences, people think that they should be able to control and manage their feelings. They think that emotional regulation skills, meaning regulating your emotions, which it doesn't, Emotional regulation skills means validating your emotions. So I imagine you just said, if somebody said me to calm down when I'm angry, I get really angry. Now imagine if you're really angry and the person in front of you gets even angrier than you, they go, oh, you must be enraged. This is so wrong. I, I imagine you're so angry and so frustrated. I would be so angry if I were you. What would that feel like? I would feel hurt. I would at least say, well, 
at least you're listening to me. Exactly. I know a lot of moms are nodding. We lose our tempers with our kids because kids notoriously don't listen to us. But to your point, if someone did it to me now, because no one has ever done that to me, I would probably be shocked for a few minutes. Like, what's going on here? And then it would be, oh, they're actually paying attention to me now. They're actually listening to me. And then we have to ask ourselves, right, is two important questions. One, why has nobody given that to you before? Meaning what I just did is basic validation and mirroring. And we live in a society that doesn't give that to us. It makes me deeply sad when I think about the implications of that, that most people that I know, it's so hard to just feel validated to just have your emotions heard and validated. So A, people don't give it to us. And then B, we internalize it. We don't give it to ourselves. So we feel angry and we go, I shouldn't be angry. Let's put this away. Let's get things done. We, We say whatever we need to say to not feel angry instead of saying to ourselves, oh, it makes sense that I'm angry. It makes sense that I'm upset. Of course, this situation is enraging. Of course, I'm in pain. And then we validate that. And as soon as we validate that, we feel soothed. And with that soothing, we can then make very calculated and and effective decisions. We take actions that are not based on getting rid of an experience. We then soothed ourselves we validated ourselves and now we could take actions to make sure that that experience doesn't happen again in our environment as mm-hmm. opposed to in ourselves. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. And again, I totally understand what you're saying and I can relate a lot to it apart from we were using me as an example, but I can obviously visualize the scenarios and environments in my head. Easier said than done, but sure. I definitely feel it can be done. And I've, I've, I'll say and I'm always completely honest and transparent in my conversations there has been times where I've just went okay whatever and then there's been other times where I've walked off and slammed the door so I know there's a lot of work to do there um, but I like that we're having this like real talk like this actually and I always say just because we're health practitioners does not mean we're exempt on any level whatsoever of course not. I think uh, just being a human being is is constant work and nobody's free from that. I think, and we were kind of mentioned kind of small talk before we started recording about the environment going on right now and the world and the fear factor there. Where does fear come into it? Like not just in people's past experiences, but do you think that what's happening right now is driving a lot of behaviors? Uh, Certainly, yes. I think that um, the governmental instability, the global pandemic, the division, all of that is, um, it's increased fear, but it's also led to a kind of collective trauma. Um, And so, it's like if we're if we're coming back to the validation, um, if we validate, of course, we all feel traumatized right now. Of course, we're all impacted right now, meaning, of course, relationships feel different to us. We had several years where we believed that hugging someone could kill them or could kill us. And of course, that reality is going to impact us. It's going to impact our nervous system. It's going to impact our physiology. So we start with validating that it makes sense that we feel traumatized. It makes sense that we feel scared. There is good reason to be scared. Mm -hmm. And only from that place of self-compassion, validating it, acknowledging that we, we are, we, regardless of what we believe politically or what our thoughts are about COVID, all of us have been traumatized in some way. Mm -hmm. Um, And so from there, we could start taking more effective actions. We could think about um, what do we want to stand for? What kind of changes can we make? What kind of baby steps can we take? What can we do right now to start feeling safer in our world and in our environment? But the fact is, is that we do need a behavioral change. The fact is, is that there are real issues that are not going to be solved 
by avoiding feelings or uh, avoiding thoughts or changing our beliefs because there are facts that there are you know issues that are not working in in our world in our collective mm. Yeah. And depending on which side of the fence you're on as well, some of us believe there's a lot of gaslighting happening, not just right now, but over the last few years. So I've heard you discuss this in some of your other conversations about nonviolent ways to kind of identify and, dare I say, protect yourself against gaslighting. Is this something that you could maybe give us some tips on? Sure. Um, I agree with you. There is a lot of gaslighting happening. And I think when there is injustice um, or corruption, uh, there's going to be more gaslighting because how else could you convince people into their own oppression unless you somehow convince them that they're not being oppressed? Mm -hmm. And so gaslighting um, is something that's always existed but that now has increased in our government. Like people are using the word unprecedented more than I've ever heard it before. And that's because it's unprecedented times. Uh, there are major issues. There is more gaslighting and now we see it more. Uh, the first step to uh, kind of defending against the gaslighting is recognizing it and noticing it. The next step is to understand the function of it what is behind this particular gaslighting? What's the motive behind the gaslighting? Is it to convince me into doing something that they want to do? Is it to make me feel uh, guilty so that I do something? Is it to make me angry so I get into reactive abuse and you could blame me? What's the function? What's the purpose of the gaslighting? Mm -hmm. um, you know, another form, I don't want to say it's gaslighting, but something that happens frequently as a form of projective identification, meaning people who are not as aware of themselves are more likely to project. We're all projecting, but the less aware you are of yourself, the more likely you are to project. So if I'm feeling a lot of anger and I'm telling you, why are you angry with me? That's a form of projecting. Mm. Now, if you say to me, I'm not angry with you, and I go, yes, you are angry with me. Um, and then you go, I'm checking in with myself. I don't feel angry. Um, maybe you're angry. Are you feeling angry? Now, in that example, you didn't identify with that projection. You were able to keep that projection into that other person and not identify with it. Now, if I keep pushing you and I go, yes, you're angry with me. Why are you so angry with me? And then at some point you go, I'm not angry. Don't you see? <laughs> I'm not angry. I know you're angry. What happens is that person has gotten you to identify with that projection. You've then taken on that person's feelings and experience and manifested it in such a way where they got to get rid of it through you and acting it. And so there, in order to get, in order to defend against gaslighting, we have to understand all of the behaviors that are involved in gaslighting such as projective identification, deceit, love bombing, um, <clears throat> blame shifting, DARVO, reverse victim offender is a big one. When somebody, when you ask somebody to be held accountable for something and they turn themselves into a victim, uh, that is one of the most um, uh, enticing types of gaslighting, meaning it's very hard to avoid that and not fall into becoming the perpetrator or feeling like this person is a victim and wanting to take care of them. So uh, there's word salad, right? And saying confusing things, uh, blame shifting, um, projecting. There's all of these pieces, uh, separate behaviors that are a part of gaslighting. So if we just see gaslighting as a, as a term, without understanding these specific strategies, it's very hard to defend against it. But when we see the strategies like invalidating um, or, or minimizing your experience or attacking your character, those are all a part of gaslighting. And in order to defend against it, we have to recognize each strategy in and of itself and also understand what's behind it. What's this person's goal? So DARVO, 
what does that stand for? And is that, from what I gathered, it's narcissism manipulation, a form of manipulation and narcissism? DARVO is a form of manipulation. It's mainly used by people with a narcissistic personality disorder, but really anybody who's being accused of something they've actually done can um, engage in DARVO. Like you could see Brett Kavanaugh does DARVO very well um, on, on his, uh, um, on his uh, trial. Uh, he was uh, really. <laughs> and what it stands for is deny, attack, reverse victim offender. So if 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 you're my partner and we agree that we're going, you're, you're going to be home for dinner at eight mm -hmm. and you show up at like midnight and I go, hey, where, where have you been? I've been waiting for you. And then you start denying. You go, no, we never agreed to have dinner at eight. No, you're misremembering or that didn't happen. Then you start attacking. Why are you always so jealous? Why are you so possessive? You're so controlling. Right? Then you deny, attack. Then you reverse the victim offender. So you become the victim. You make me the offender. You go, I had this work meeting that went late and I told you about this work meeting and you never remember the things that I tell you. And now you're accusing me of being late and, and you know that this meeting was so important and I work hard to contribute to this family. I can't, right now you've denied, attacked, you've made the other person feel bad. Now you've become the victim. And that- Really twisting it. Twisting it. It's a form of it's a, a form of a more complex and sophisticated form of rever of blame shifting. So then you almost have the other person who stayed up till midnight at the end saying, "I'm sorry, I was over exaggerating. I should have been more understanding." And now they're the bad guy. That's exactly what happens. And I think that this is the number one most powerful manipulative strategy there is. Because when someone feels like uh, the perpetrator and somebody sees somebody crying, upset, sad, it's very hard. It's a very strong pull to, to fall into that role to try to make them feel better, even though um, they're the ones that created the situation. So then just to understand if someone is on the other end of that and they don't say, I'm sorry, I understand. I know you're always providing for us. And they stand firm in their ground. That's obviously going to cause a lot of tension there in the relationship. What are the options there? The other person's, then you could, in my mind, again, I'm not a psychotherapist, but that argument could last for a very long time at that stage if someone's not willing to give that argument would not last a long time because you would set a boundary, assert your limits and walk away and not engage in that kind of conversation at all. Mm -hmm. Now, the dilemma, I think what's very interesting, it's very counterintuitive, but the reality of it is the more we give in to gaslighting, the more we give the perpetrator what they want, we reward their behavior. Actually, it, ca it, it causes more friction than not. It's just like a schema. If I feel uh, afraid of abandonment and I seek reassurance, I go, hey, are you, do you still love me? Are you still going to be with me? And my partner goes, yes, I do. S stop it. I am with you. Now, in the moment, I feel relief. I don't feel as much abandonment. But in the long run, it makes it worse and worse because I need more reassurance and my partner is getting more irritated. It's the same thing with any type of toxic behavior. If you reward a toxic behavior, the dilemma is you feel a relief from it, which is a form of intermittent reinforcement. It's negative reinforcement. You've been relieved from your suffering. And in the moment, it feels better like any addiction. But in the long run, it gets worse and worse because the abuser will continue to escalate the gaslighting, continue to escalate, um, you know, uh, when we're thinking about manipulative people or people with NPD, it's, it's like they have a remote control and they're trying to control all of your responses. If they want you to feel guilty, they want to press the guilt button. If they want you to feel afraid, they want to press the fear button. If they want you to beg, they're going to press the attack button, right? So there's a way in which if you give them what they want, if you have the remote control working, they will only continue pressing your buttons. You have to do the more uncomfortable thing in the moment, not let that remote control work so that they no longer can push your button.
happens. And if it continues to happen, though, I suppose the relationship would eventually end because if you set boundaries, there's only so far it can go. The reality of it is, in my personal experience, when I've helped couples where a person is with a, a, a person with NPD or a very manipulative person, as soon as they stop letting the buttons work, the very opposite thing happens. It's not that the person wants to end the relationship. The person then starts wanting the relationship even more. They go, I'll go to therapy. I'll do this. I love you. Whatever you want. As soon as you stop putting up with it, they actually go back to love bombing and using other strategies to get the remote control to work again. So uh, it's like a person who has, you know, a, a bag full of tools and strategies to kind of extract what they want from you. And they they condition you. They use behavioral modification, very sophisticated forms of brainwashing uh, and behavioral conditioning, um, kind of like they, they do the... Uh, they use CBT strategies, but in an opposite way, in a toxic way. In CBT, we want to reward consistently. They reward inconsistently. So you're really confused and under their control. So, yeah, go ahead. Do you think narcissism is a genetic trait or is it a learned skill from a parent or... Narcissism, I believe, is epigenetic. And when I mean what I mean by epigenetic is that it is a very complicated disorder. So, for example, um, the term psychopath is used to describe somebody who has antisocial personality disorder and was born that way. And the term sociopath is someone who has antisocial personality disorder and was raised to be that. But then when we look at research or we look at the real life facts, it's very difficult to distinguish in a person what they were born with and what kind of environmental factors contributed to it. Mm -hmm. But I do believe that there are epigenetic factors, meaning generational trauma uh, is passed epigenetically. Mm -hmm. And I think so is narcissism and so are many type of uh, these type of dynamics uh, that, that, that that occur. Um, for example, um, given uh, that women have been, you know, up until very recently, like this is the second generation of women who have not been dependent on their partner for financial freedom. Women are more, um, they are more, uh, um, they're predisposed, uh, they have more vulnerability uh, mm -hmm. towards gaslighting, self-gaslighting, um, self-doubt, uh, and uh, kind of subjugating their own thoughts and experiences uh, for others. And that is epigenetic, right? Because through evolution, we have been conditioned that the women that survive to reproduce are the women that if their husband was cheating on them with their secretary or something like that in the 1930s and he came home and was gaslighting them and saying, no, 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 I'm the victim. I didn't write all of that. The women who could convince themselves, no, 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 he's not with his secretary. I'm delusional. I'm, you know, doing the self-gaslighting. Those are the women that survived to reproduce. Those were the women that had access to resources. So epigenetically speaking, um, there is a way in which there are many societal uh, dynamics that are not so black and white, not genetics or environment, but our current environment mixed with a historical environment. So interesting. I heard you throw around the term love bomb a few times. I've never heard that term before. What does that refer to? When you said it, I was like, chocolate bomb? Like a Christmas? <laughs> so, yeah, what does that refer to? Uh, love bombing is when um, a manipulative a manipulative person um, mirrors you and idealizes you and basically uh, treats you, you know, bombs you with love. So gives you compliments, admires you, tells you how great you are. They do future faking. They, they tell you, we're going to get married or we're going to have babies and we're this. They make lots of promises and they, they, they kind of pull you up. They, they push you up 
to make you fall in love with them and to make you feel really great about yourself so that then they could start slowly removing that using intermittent reinforcement, which ends up causing an addiction. So when you feel really connected to someone and, and, and feeling this admiration, love, support, positive things coming your way, and then it just stops in ways that you don't understand, mm -hmm. you end up then working harder to prove yourself and get like, get that, that idealization phase back. So often people with personality disorders tend to idealize people and devalue them. And so in the beginning, when they're idealizing you, they're love bombing you. And then when they start devaluing you, you become hooked. You become addicted to trying to get the idealization phase back and you blame yourself for why it stopped. And it, it's, it's a very strong addiction. So when, and I know we're going on a little bit, but this is just so interesting when the intermittent reinforcement starts to happen, do you think that person knows what they're doing or it's just a personality trait? It's just, again, that genetic coding. I find yeah. it hard to believe that, and I could be completely wrong, but that someone's actively thinking, and I'm no doubt there's some extreme narcissists who know what they're doing, but for the general person who may be a narcissist and they do the love bombing and then it becomes intermittent, it, like, are they consciously doing that? Yes, they all know. Yes. So what I mean by yes, they know is that things are not so black and white. They're quite complex, meaning that people could be aware of something on a subconscious level and not on a completely conscious level. But if you just ask them, if you go, hey, are you gaslighting me? Or hey, are you, are you love bombing me? Or hey, are you mirroring me? It will become conscious. It's not completely unconscious. If you think about it, men, I would think many of us or all of us know, we, we feel the feeling in our body, you know, like in dating right now, there's a lot of game playing and things like that right and um uh people have these rules like don't be too available right you have to be kind of unavailable right or, I'm kind or of glad I'm married. <laughs> right and, and and there's like that book the game where it talks about negging women kind of giving them a backhanded compliment so there's a way in which all of us are aware that if you move towards someone and pull away, you feel it. You feel it in the energy of what happens to a person. If you're blaming them, if you're accusing them, if you go from loving them and walking away from them, uh, you it's no secret. I think we all know uh, that that's going to drive somebody to insanity, that that's going to be really upsetting, right? Unless uh, you're really dumb like really, really dumb and you don't realize what you're doing and how it's impacting the other person? Well, um, I would say that if we're talking about somebody who does not have narcissistic personality disorder, um, but has happened to idealize someone and then devalue them, um, maybe they don't have awareness but if we're talking about people that do this often, like somebody with an avoidant attachment style or somebody with narcissistic personality disorder, they've done this pattern over and over and over again, and they are aware of it. Meaning when I, when clients come to see me in therapy, I've never had a client come to therapy without some awareness of what's bothering them. It's like, Abby, do I have OCD? Do I have anxiety? Is this a phobia? What, right? But they have some idea of what's going on. Somebody with anxiety is not coming in going, am I a narcissist? Uh, somebody who has experienced narcissistic abuse themselves may come in asking if they're a narcissist. But again, that's giving information about something that's really happening for them. Mm -hmm. And that's also true for people who lack empathy for people with narcissistic personality disorder. Most people with NPD have some awareness that they're different at about age eight or nine years old. Just like most people who have anxiety could tell that they're they're they have anxiety at a younger age, right? Um, or somebody who has depression. It's not like somebody wakes up at like 30 and is suddenly depressed. Sometimes if there's a specific event, but often it's something that we start noticing at an early age. And so there's patterns that build and we start noticing it. Mm -hmm. So 
if you're talking about a person who has narcissistic personality disorder, um, most likely they are aware on a subconscious level what they're doing. And to a certain extent, depending on how many relationships they've been in, they've gotten to a point where they're consciously aware. If they are a psychopath, if they're higher, narcissism is on a spectrum. There's a narcissistic personality. There's overt narcissism, covert narcissism, and then antisocial personality disorder, which is uh, psychopathy. Uh, all psychopaths know that they're psychopaths. They know that they like empathy. They know they like tormenting people. They know that they get a sense of pleasure when somebody is begging, screaming, and crying. Uh, they are aware of that. They may not be aware. It, it, they're just as confused about the disorder as anybody else with a disorder, meaning somebody who is just starting to have OCD symptoms may not may be aware that something is wrong, but they're not sure. They start researching it. What am I doing? Right. It's the same for people with narcissism. They are very aware in the environment that they're different. They're very aware that things are different and they're very aware. Um, all of us, to a certain degree, energetically know what works. You know what I mean? Like we stumble into strategies, right? Like if um, if your partner asks, a friend asks you to borrow their car and you say, no, I can't lend you my car. And they start threatening you. They go, if you don't let me borrow your car, I'm never lending you anything. And you say, no, I feel really uncomfortable. I can't lend you my car. So then they move away from threatening and they start attacking you. You're a jerk. You're mean. I hate you. And you go, whoa, this is really hurtful. This is uncomfortable. I'm not lending you my car. Next, they start using guilt tripping. They go, oh, my goodness, I have a job interview. I'm not going to be able to get to this job if I don't have your car. And what am I going to do? I'm not going to be able to pay rent. And then you go, OK, OK, here's my here are my car keys. Now that person, it doesn't matter how smart they are, how aware they are, subconsciously, unconsciously, consciously, it doesn't matter. They are aware on some level that guilt is what got their car keys. Um, and that means that the next time they need something from you, they're more likely to use guilt. Mm -hmm. Maybe with somebody else, they'll be more likely to use anger or maybe threatening. But we all learn from our interactions what works, what doesn't work with a particular person whether on a conscious level or on a subconscious level, we're all aware of that. And we all automatically do those things. So interesting. Like I could listen, you articulate it so well that I can understand. And sometimes I would consider myself a layman, but I want people to under, to explain it in a way I can understand. And obviously you're very confident in what you're saying, which I love. How yeah. do people work with you or I'm I'm hopeful that people really are not in a sexual way but attracted to your vibe as much as I am like you do exuberant that kind of persona that you can help people and I hope people are attracted to that so how can people work with you uh because this is just fascinating <laughs> I feel really touched that uh, you saying that thank you um People could work with me uh, by visiting one of my websites. So I have bayareacbtcenter.com. Mm -hmm. And then I also have cbtonline.com. And one is for online therapy. And one is for in-person therapy. And I also offer webinars, online courses, and other kinds of resources. Um, if anybody has a specific question for me, they could always send me an email at uh, info at bayareacbtcenter.com. Um, and if anybody wants to take the schema questionnaire, that's also available um, on bayareacbtcenter.com. And I have a lot of other quizzes and questionnaires on there to measure self-compassion and procrastination and workplace schemas, relationship schemas. So uh, yeah. And okay, I'd be well, I will be posting the links to the quizzes. Like I told you, I'm going to do the schema one. Do you do initial consultations then to see if you're a good fit before you play sessions into the calendar or how does that work? Um, it depends. It depends what the person is calling in for and, and who they're looking for and what's going on for them. Okay. So, uh, 
most of the time I tend to do uh, initial consultations and, and assess the situation first. Uh, but I also have several other clinicians uh, in my group practice. Mm -hmm. And so it, it depends on the individual. Okay. All right. Well, this has been incredible. Maybe we'll have you back on in the new year, depending on how things go in the world, if we're still here or not. <laughs> <laughs> who knows? Like at this stage, who knows? We really don't. I think that's very true. <laughs> it's like, no wonder we're all living on edge. Like tomorrow could be anything. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's very, very crazy times right now, for sure. If, if if we're both still alive and, and functioning, I would love to be back and, and do this again. I'm just going to tell you uh, this funny meme that was going around during COVID that I think is quite fitting when we were at the stage of, oh my God, this is the end of the world, this, that, and the other. There's a meme of Kermit the Frog and he's looking out the window and there's a thunderstorm outside and he says... Oh, look, it's a thunderstorm, but under the circumstances now, it could be effing Godzilla out there. <laughs> right. It's just so crazy. But anyway. It really is. It's a very, very crazy time right now. Well, thank you so much for your time. This has been awesome. I hope you have a great day. You too. It was a lot of fun.